Welcome to the Manufacturing Employer Podcast, where we talk workplace culture and all things related to the strategies that drive exceptional environments for employees. You'll hear conversations with those in the manufacturing space tasked with making their workplace better. Employee engagement, benefits, onboarding, hiring, we'll be discussing the working experience from top to bottom. Let's get into the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Manufacturing Employer. I'm your host, John Franco, co-founder of Gorilla 76, the industrial marketing agency. We help manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. On this episode, we have someone who's become not only a trusted advisor for me, but just also in general, a, a good friend. We met randomly watching fireworks on the 4th of July, and after talking for only a few minutes, I knew this was someone I needed to try to hang around and learn as much as possible from. Years and years of manufacturing and business experience, a willingness to share and teach others. He is a retired professor after all. And in general, just a good and caring person who is doing his part to make it all better than he found it. Elliot Sherman comes to us with experience so rich that even after cutting his bio in half, it's still going to take a minute or two to read. But it's important to set the stage in full. And this guy has so much experience to learn from. I don't want to shortchange any of that. So let's get into it. Elliot Sherman retired from Northeastern University in 2020 after a long career as a member of the finance group in the School of Business. Prior to joining Northeastern, Elliot served as CFO, treasurer, and director of a manufacturer of adhesive sealants and caulking materials, and as a partner and CFO of Venture Builders, an advisory firm dedicated to helping entrepreneurs build successful businesses. He also served as professor of finance at the Holt International Business School for nearly 10 years. Earlier in his career, he was CFO of a medium-sized shoe parts manufacturing company and controller of two successful textile manufacturers. For many years, he was principal of his own consulting firm, providing strategic and operational planning assistance and financial management guidance to smaller growing businesses. Among the firms he served was a consulting firm focused on repetitive manufacturing practices. Elliot has more than 30 years of financial management experience in several manufacturing and service companies, holding titles from administrative manager, director of human resources, hint, hint, why he's on the show today, and from division controller to corporate controller to chief financial officer, another reason he's on the show today. During his career, he has worked for businesses from the very small to the Fortune 50, from private to publicly held, from domestic to multinational to foreign-owned. For 25 years, he served on the board of directors of a publicly held foam plastics fabricator, and he has served as a director or advisor to several corporations and nonprofit organizations in the Boston area. And I'd like to add, he's kind of doing it here in St. Louis, too. Mr. Sherman was educated at Harvard College and earned his master's degree from the Amos Tuck School of Business Administration at Dartmouth and from Bentley College. He has taught extensively for several state societies of CPAs and for the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. I told you it was a long one, but it was all important to get in. So Elliot, welcome to the show. You ready to do this? I am. Thank you very much for inviting me and making me sound so good. I was just the one trying to read it all. It's amazing all you've accomplished, and I'm excited to unpack some of that and bring some of a lot of those learnings from the years to our audience. 
As we've discussed, this podcast is for those trying to build great cultures in manufacturing companies. And you, well, you just happen to have experience working in manufacturing companies, as we learned in your bio. Through the years, can you tell us about some of the positive cultures you've been around? Maybe some of the negative ones? Certainly not asking you to throw any companies under the bus, but what have emerged as the themes of the companies doing it right? And what have some of those themes of the companies doing it incorrectly? John, to begin with, I would say that the companies that do it right are the ones where the management at all levels is conscious of all the people in the organization, that they build their business around their people as well as their product, and they think about how to make the people who are doing the work feel like they're part of something that is important, strong, interesting, and enjoyable. And the ones that don't do it as well are the ones where leaders think they have to make all the decisions, where they have to be always in charge, and where they don't pay attention to the different people, the different organizational elements, the structure of the organization, the things people do. So the quick answer is good management is participative involved and communicative. But not micromanagers, which I think I also heard from you. It's funny because I actually wrote a LinkedIn post about that this morning, kind of this idea of why I think often we feel the need to micromanage when we're in leadership positions or not the need to, but it can creep in. But the way I've always looked at it is if I'm feeling that need, either there's a trust issue or there's a failure of accountability somewhere. And either one of those has to be addressed. Well, micromanaging essentially implies that the manager knows how to do everything better than anybody else and is reluctant to let the anybody else find out how to do it and do it their way. Micromanaging is very time-consuming, very distracting to the employees, and not very productive overall. The concern about minutia gets in the way of achieving goals and objectives. Anything else as you've painted this picture of what a great company culture can look like or what are those core elements? Any others that you would think to kind of bring into the mix as you start to think of the personality of a company? Well, I'm glad you raised that because personality was what I was going to talk about next. The real reality is every company has a personality. It's not necessarily reflective of the top management, although it usually is. And the personality of top management, when it's receptive, positive, encouraging, will filter through the rest of the organization so that everybody feels like they're a part of something. Those organizations that don't work very well, the management is not receptive to anybody else's ideas. Putting people in a position where they can contribute makes them feel valuable and increases the power of the organization by the number of people they have who are contributing. In a micromanagement environment, the only people really contributing are the one or two or three people who are doing the micromanagement. I think something that we have learned, not just Joe and I, but our entire company, especially those in leadership positions, I think we've really started to learn the importance of listening 
it's shocking that it's taken me this many years on this planet to figure that out. But I think a lot of times when we're leaders, we want to know that our way is the best way. Or, But man, there's so many insights and so much to be gained from listening to what your people are talking about, what troubles they're having, what roadblocks they're hitting. For us, a gorilla, at least, I think that has been a major game changer in us. It's kind of this idea of servant leadership of Yes, you have to be a leader and direct and do a lot of the driving at times. If I've hired someone to do a job, sometimes the best thing I can do is just get all the roadblocks out of the way for them, for them to take off with it. Well, if you think about a manufacturing company, as you noted in my bio, I love manufacturing. I love to watch and see things being made. The business, even at the smallest size manufacturer, is a very complex business because you have the standard administrative and managerial responsibilities the office work, the office part of the business, but you also have the need to be able to get materials, make a product, make a product so that it serves your client or customer needs, and then get it to the customer in an efficient way. And to try to micromanage a manufacturing company frequently creates all kinds of roadblocks and confusions that make it very difficult for it to achieve its objectives. So a manufacturing company is a great example of the need for decentralized management. Yes, you can have the final decision makers sitting in the office, but the day-to-day stuff is all on the floor. It's all in the field. It's all over the place. And trying to manage all of that by yourself in a micro environment has almost no chance to succeed. It's no surprise that I've kind of created a script of questions to follow. And it's something that I've, I've got later on. But I know in the past, when you and I have talked over coffee, we've talked a lot about the importance of walking around when you're in a leadership position, walking the shop floor, getting out in the field. Can you talk about that and your experiences there and, and how that maybe helped you as a leader by getting out away from the desk and out amongst the workers, so to speak, to see what's going on. If you're sitting at your desk, you can't see anything else going on. So I, early on in my career, found that I was most successful when I was interacting with the people who were doing the work, making sure that what they were doing was what needed to be done. Maybe one of the examples that I use is that I was hired as a controller of a company, and the very first day, the CFO of the company called all the people who were going to work for me into a meeting. And then brought me into this meeting with all these people sitting around. And you could see, look on the, on the faces of the people that they were uncertain what was going to happen. And so after Gil introduced me, I greeted everybody and said hello. And then said, just so you understand, as of this moment, All of you have just had a change to your job description. The first line of your job description now reads, manage your boss. And your job is to use me to help you do your job better. So if anything I can do to assist you or answer questions or to find solutions to challenges that you have will help me be successful, will help you be successful, will help us be successful. And I really meant that. From then on, in that job and in all the jobs I've had, 
where I had managerial responsibility, I spent a great deal of time interacting with the people around me, not only the ones who reported to me, but the people who were involved in the business at all levels. I got to know the people on the shop floor, the people in the warehouse, in the distribution center, and find out what they needed, what they were doing, what was working and what was not. I read somewhere very early in my career that the best way to find improvements in your business is to ask the people doing the work every day. They know what needs to be done. They know how to make things better, how to fix procedures and practices that don't work very well. And if you draw on their knowledge and their experience, several things happen. Your business gets better. The people feel better about their role and more willing to share and contribute to what's going on. They are the ones who observe every day everything that's going on. And you can't possibly see it all. But I would spend a lot of time moving around the business, the, the building I was in, often going to other facilities, just to find out and make sure I understood how the business was working. It makes total sense. And it's something that I even, as you and I have talked a lot, Gorilla is a, we're a remote workforce at this point. So those walking around opportunities are less, but there are still opportunities to do it. It just happens in our world in Slack channels. It happens in daily phone calls to employees. There are other ways to do it. It has to be much more intentional, but I totally agree that when you don't do that, you miss out on not only the business side of things that are obviously very important, but learning about the things that really matter to the people, about why maybe they're working in the first place, about maybe a trip they have coming up that they're excited about. You shared a story about a particular employee with me, and it involved reading. Is that a story you'd be willing to kind of elaborate on? Absolutely. Absolutely. As you noted, I worked in a company that made it manufacturing a caulking compound. And caulking compound, as everybody knows, is one of the nastiest products you can probably possibly have. And manufacturing it is just awful. And the plant that we had reflected that. It was a dirty, difficult environment. I was laughing because I rehabbed my house and I know how nasty of a product it is. I mean, I had caulk everywhere. So anyway. It really is. You can just visualize how making it is going to be even worse. I was wandering through the, the manufacturing facility, and I I had conversations with lots of the employees. I got to know most of them pretty well. One of them was a very quiet, hardworking individual, and it took me a while to get to know him. But as I talked to him, I realized that he was doing things by memory. He was doing things by rote. What he'd been taught was what he was doing. I got to talk to him a little bit more and got to know him pretty well. Turns out his wife was virtually deaf. He had two young children. And as we talked about them, he confided in me that one of the things that he wanted to be able to do was to read a book to his son. So I explored that a little bit with him. And it turns out, that he memorized his job because he could not read. And I was serving as both the chief financial officer of the company, 
but also as the director of human resources. And so I called a friend of mine who had worked with children with learning disabilities. And she helped me understand a variety of different resources. And we found a program where this individual could go after work and learn to read. We also got more involved with his family, learned a bit more about what his kids needed. And this friend of mine helped develop individual educational plans for both of their children. And the consequence was that this worker, David, became much more effective, much more committed to the company. He was much happier. His family was much more able to function. And it's just a reflection of one of the things that an attentive human resource function can do. We know in HR about all sorts of resources, both inside and outside the company, or how to go find more of them. Taking advantage of that and tailoring things to the needs of individual people. And it doesn't matter whether the company is a large one or a small one. You get to know the people in the business. You'll find out that somebody has a problem or somebody has something wonderful to share. That some there's been an event in the family that is good, an event in the family that's problematic, various circumstances. And there are solutions that are available. Most companies now today have 401k plans, for example. They provide resources and tools to help employees both build for their retirement future, but also build a resource that they can use if an emergency occurs. And understanding how those tools work makes it that much more beneficial for everybody. Again, part of my LinkedIn post that I wrote this morning, something that I think it's not only just the the right thing to do to help people and to help someone read so they can, it's also the smart business thing to do, right? Like you start building a culture that starts snowballing. I can almost guarantee you that story, other people heard about that story, whether, I mean, I'm not saying that you went and told everyone, oh, look at this great deed I did, but but that guy probably told the guy standing next to him on the line one day about how excited he is about this. And that those things permeate a culture and they start to just, I feel like they take over. So that's something I hope people can make. I think a lot of times when we think of putting money into our people, we think of it as an expense, but it's not, it's such an investment. And as a CFO, I think you, you probably often saw it. Maybe that's a good segue into kind of looking at when you've been in, involved in the financial side of numerous businesses as well. You've taught finance. You've wrote, I didn't even put this in your bio, or I didn't even read this part about your bio, but you've taught a personal finance class. But all HR decisions come back to finance. So how does a company's financial standing and just the CFO's office, how does it tie to the hiring manager's office? You need to understand that in every company, there are really no secrets. The people on the floor know better than anybody else what's going on in the company. They probably know what everybody makes. They probably know what everybody does. The grapevine inside the company is extraordinary. So understanding that, you need to be aware of the fact, regardless of what role you have in the company, that everybody knows what's going on. And so you can share. You can enlist help if you need it. 
one of my favorite things that I ever learned was essentially the process of following practices through the company to see how things are done and to see where there are opportunities for improvement or efficiency or flexibility. And I taught a course recently in managerial accounting, which is essentially how can we do things better? And the role that you have in finance, the role that you have in HR is how can we do things better? How do we put people into positions where they can be successful? How do we give them the tools to be successful in the positions that they're in? How do we make sure that we have the right people in the right seats at the right time? You learn that by walking around. You learn that by watching and seeing what people do. You learn that by giving them the authority to fix what they see isn't working right. And it saves the company money. It improves the company performance. So it all flows back to the financial performance of the business. And businesses will be successful when they are efficient, intelligent, and structured and organized in an effective way. One of the things that we're seeing now in the marketplace is companies are taking advantage of the expectation of a resource to right-size their businesses. And many of them are doing it, I'm going to say ham-handedly, rather than by judiciously making the decisions that they should be making. Companies tend, if they're not careful, to overhire in the good times, and then they go through the pain of trying to get back to where they should be because they underestimated what people could accomplish. And so they put more people into more positions and ended up with redundancies and causing all kinds of disruption when the world changes a little bit. The most effective companies are the ones that don't need to lay off during recession because they didn't overhire during the good times. From the perspective of both having your HR experience coming into play here and your financial experience, how do you manage that? My industry is is totally different. We typically, we rarely hire ahead of revenue. We are also a relatively small organization. We're not landing a contract for multiple millions of dollars where all of a sudden we need to make a widget for someone and we got to have the staff ready. It's different for us. So how do you manage that? Or what do you think the best practices are for managing that flow? I think you just described what companies of all sizes and types should be. They should not be hiring or should limit their hiring in advance of revenue. In some cases, you need to because you have to have people trained in place when the revenue shows up. But you realize that if you hire somebody before you need them, you just created more overhead, more expense with no productivity for at least some period of time. Hiring becomes an important task, a careful task, a timely task. The hiring process needs to be efficient, just like everything else needs to be efficient. But one of the things that's true today, and I was thinking about this this morning, is that if you're hiring somebody, you're bringing them in for an interview, and they're going to come in having prepared. 
they have their answers. And so your job as a hiring manager or the interim level within the hiring process is to get behind the facade to find out who the people really are and to understand that the prepared answers are not the answers you want, need, or can use, but they're gonna be there. It's a little like we all ask for references whenever we wanna hire somebody. And you know, and I know, and everybody knows that the references you get are gonna be the people that the candidate thinks are gonna give the best report. So a lot of people say, I don't bother to check references because I know what they're going to say. And that's wrong. You should check all the references, but you need to learn how to listen for what is not said, essentially for what's left out. When you're interviewing, it's the same thing. You want to talk about the person much more than the job. I was thinking about this as well. If you think about 100% of an interview, the candidate should be doing 75% of the talking. If the interviewer doesn't like to interview, is nervous, or is uncertain, the interviewer will do 75% of the talking, and the candidate will sit there and nod knowingly periodically and get a great review because he agreed with the, the interviewer. And so you need to be careful about that. Make sure that you're getting what the candidate needs to tell you not repeating the things that you already know. I love that, Elliot. It's something that's reflective in our hiring process at Gorilla, or we try to do. I try to create lots of opportunities for, this sounds negative and I hate to put a negative spin on it, but I try to create lots of opportunities for the person I'm interviewing to weed themselves out. That can look like me asking them to call me at a certain time for the interview screening call instead of me calling them. It can look like a variety of things, but I want to see, can they manage a calendar? If, they, if they're supposed to call me at 10, are they going to call me at 10 or do they call it 10.05 or 10.07? The more someone can talk and the more you can let someone talk, the more opportunities you're going to get to learn about that person. It's so logical, but I think a lot of times I see it done incorrectly. And I even feel the need sometimes when you have those quiet gaps and in an interview, et cetera, to just try to fill, to fill, to fill. But that's really where a lot of the learning's coming from, I think. It's interesting that you mentioned it that way. I was I took a public speaking course when I was in college. One of the things that the professor said was use pauses to be effective. And if you don't say something, very often someone will fill that space. And you get to find out more about the individual. Well, the same thing's true in an interview. You want to create the kinds of questions that give you a chance to talk not about specific things, but rather to talk about general things, to learn more about the individual. I taught a course at one point for controllers of businesses. And one of the things that stuck with me from that course was the hiring process. And one of the questions was, which is more important in a business, people skills or technical skills? And the correct answer is obviously people skills. Which is easier to teach, people skills 
or technical skills? The answer to that is technical skills. And then the question is, so for what do you hire? And the answer is most frequently, companies hire for technical skills. So true. Because they're easier to measure. So true. But the truth of the matter is, I can teach anybody to be an accountant. I can't teach them to be personable and observant and participating. So when you interview, interview for what you want. Interview for that which you need in your business, not that which is easiest. Yeah, a lot of those, I guess those are considered soft skills. A lot of those soft skills, I mean, they take 20, 30, 40 years to build. It's how you were brought up, how you've dealt with adversity, how you've, those aren't things that you can teach in a three-month training program, right? If you're hiring somebody for a relatively low-level position in your organization, they are probably young and don't have a whole lot of experience. But you can find out very quickly whether or not they have this, the savvy to understand, the ability to, to relate, adjust, adapt. Totally. And I was referring to 20 years of life experience, like a 20-year-old kid, which I'll call a kid at 20 because I'm 40 now and anything younger than that seems like a kid. Definitely not 20 years of work experience, but again, the way that that person until they've reached the age of 20, et cetera, has dealt with adversity or dealt with whatever, all those things that shape and make us who we are. Those are the things that, in my opinion, I don't think you can teach in two to three months as part of onboarding, so to speak. You can teach them how to run a machine, how to clock in and clock out and do all that stuff. That's easy. But to your point, those bigger skills, those which, which really lead to like the problem-solving abilities and all those core business competencies that are so important, I don't think you can teach that that quickly. There's a right way and a wrong way to kind of walk the floor, so to speak. And, and you told me a story about a certain manager or a boss when you were at a company that, that maybe walked the floor the wrong way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, happy to. Because I think it's a great story. I think it, it's a telling story. This gentleman was significantly older than, than I. He was the chief financial officer. I was the controller of the company. I was responsible for the accounting department. Our hours were nine to five, officially. Every morning at eight o'clock, the CFO, my boss, would arrive at the building, go to his office, hang up his coat, and walk through the accounting department. And every evening at 6 o'clock, he would walk through the accounting department, go back to his office, get his coat, and go home. When I told you the story, I asked you what he was doing. I got it wrong. I answered incorrectly. Yeah, well, I said he was taking attendance because he believed that if you were at your desk, you must be working. Well, we all know that that's not true. He was measuring based upon his perception that if you were at your desk, the company was getting the benefit. At eight o'clock every morning, everybody was at their desk. And at six o'clock at night, everybody was at their desk because they knew he was taking attendance. But it didn't mean that they were being productive during that time. 
And he and I had a number of discussions about how to manage people in an office. And it's a little bit unlike a manufacturing, a production environment in that people in, in the economy department are working with paper and numbers and information rather than making something or following a specific procedure. And we had a rule which basically limited the amount of time that people could be paid for not being in the office. I had a number of employees who had family needs. Occasionally, one had one woman had an older mother whom she had to take to the doctor. Doctors hold office hours during office hours. There was an issue because she would need to take time off to go take care of her mother. And that was against the company's rules. And so I had numerous conversations with my boss about creating some flexible time for people to do the things that they needed to do. And it was a very difficult conversation because it was inconsistent with what he had as his perception of requirements. And we had ratings about people and being timely and at their desk on time and so forth and so on. And we were basically evaluating those people who showed up on time all the time rather than what they produced. Particularly in today's environment, outside of a manufacturing, a machine-controlled environment, we need to be responsive to the needs of the people who are working for us. One of the things that COVID has taught us is that people have other lives. And they need to balance the lives of home and work and other personal needs and so forth. And we need to be responsive to that and to find ways to adapt to it more so now than ever before. And I think that will continue forever. That we're never going to go back to nine to five, meaning nine to five. But rather, it's going to be, what does it take to get the job done? And can I count on you to do it? There's no doubt it's a uh, it's a brave new world, and it's been interesting to see how companies have changed, how they've learned, how they've made missteps, how they've made positive steps. Something I'm navigating myself as kind of the person responsible at, at my company, Gorilla76, as kind of the culture lead and director, so to speak. It's been a challenge, but it, it's been a fun challenge, if I'm being honest. I've enjoyed it. Your company is intriguing to me because it's at the front edge of what work is going to be from now on. In most cases, outside of, as I say, customer-facing or machine-facing responsibilities, there's a great deal more flexibility. And adapting to this new flexibility is critically important. And I think we'll find that there's more flexibility being built into manufacturing as well as we go forward, because everybody's going to get used to being able to do things when they need to. We will have more floaters on the floor being able to step in so that people can do other things that they need to do or adapt to or adjust to or respond to an urgency of some sort. I think we're going to see a lot more flexibility, particularly as technology makes it possible for machines to run with less attention, less direct attention 
we will see a lot more flexibility on the machine floor, just as we see in the office floor now. That's something I hadn't even thought about because, of course, in my space, I'm constantly thinking about flexibility in an information business like marketing. It's easy for us to work wherever and whenever. And of course, there are client meetings or appointments. You have to be at certain places at certain times. But outside of that, it really is just getting the work done. Well, it's different when you have machines running and you have there's a physical location where people need to go to. So I'm I'm glad that you got into what a flexible manufacturing organization looks like. Cause I think that's going to be a hot topic here in the, I'm sure it's a hot topic right now. It's going to continue to be a hot topic. Well, the concept of machine facing and customer facing as different from the independent workforce and the, the independent task requirement, I think is something that we need to pay close attention to. If you're customer facing, you need to be there when the customer is there. If you're machine facing, you need to do what the machine requires you to do in order to produce the product that you're making. But even on the factory floor, you'll find that we'll have more flexibility, we'll have more adaptability, we'll have more people trained to do different tasks on the floor so that we can relieve and shift the weight of the organization quickly. If something needs to be adapted, whether it's a production flow or it's something that needs to be adapted to or adjusted to or something breaks or whatever it may be, we want to have people who can be productive throughout the organization. I watch Rule of 76 and I'm fascinated because I see the culture in your organization being one of collaboration and communication and a genuine interpersonal relationship among your your workers. And I think that's a factor that is increasingly important, whether you're on the factory floor or in an office or in the field. I mean, I've worked in manufacturing facilities that worked very, very well, where the leadership was responsive, the organization was effective, everybody worked together. Perhaps the best one was a cold rolled steel mill with the steelworkers union. But the union and the management worked together rather than at cross purposes. The CEO of the company was a retired admiral from the Navy, and he clearly understood the importance of building teamwork and relationships with all of the people on the factory floor, all the people in the office, and all of the, the functions that needed to be done. And he fostered an environment where the union was a critical part of the success of the business, communicating, sharing ideas, working together to solve problems and to make things work as efficiently and effectively as possible. And some of that work was actually done on Friday nights at the local bar where everybody would gather for a beer after the end of the work week. And the management was there as well and enjoying conversation and sharing ideas and doing things together. I'll give you another example that I thought was particularly telling. There is a furniture chain in Massachusetts that is very famous. It's called Jordan's Furniture. For many years, they had four stores. About 15 years ago, I think, the company was bought by Berkshire Hathaway for a quarter of a billion dollars. Wow. 
And the two owners of the factory, excuse me, the retail store, the furniture store, came to work the following day. The company, one August weekend, announced that they would be closed for the weekend. Why? Because they were taking everybody in the in the company to Bermuda for the weekend. Pretty nice. How would you like to work for a company like that? Sounds pretty good to me. Okay. Well, if you think about a retail store, the retail turnover is usually very high. Retail jobs are terrible. Sure. That company has a wait list of people who want to work there if a job opens up. Their headcount turnover every year is about 5%. Wow. In retail. That's fascinating. Okay. So it doesn't matter what business you're in. You can build a business that is very people-centered, very effective. This particular furniture company had the highest per square foot retail revenue of any company in the country when they were acquired by Berkshire Hathaway. That's fascinating. Elliot, I mean, this has been so informative. Any final thoughts or anything that we didn't talk about that you really want to make sure that it's covered? I guess what's important, John, is that the human resource people, the management of the company, but human resources in particular, need to be very attuned to the personality of the company, to the personality of the people who work there. When the personalities are compatible, the environment is positive, and everybody gets along and gets a lot of stuff done. When the personalities aren't so compatible, particularly if the leadership of the organization isn't attuned to the people on the, doing the, the day-to-day work, it's a much more difficult, much less enjoyable, much less fun place to be, I think, much less successful over, over a long period of time. So I guess I would talk about getting to know people, both when you hire them and then from then on. And if you have someone who doesn't fit, find out what's going on, see if it's something that can be adapted to or adjusted. Or it's better to make a change, to give people the opportunity to find the place where they do fit, rather than to force them to continue on where they don't fit. When people don't fit, nothing works very well. Everybody is a a little bit anxious, a little bit less fluid. When everybody works together and you step in and everybody has a good time and gets work done, it's amazing how much stuff gets done every day. Here, here. I think you just gave me the title of the podcast episode. So it's all about personality, right? How can our listeners learn more about you or get in touch with you if they have any questions or, and you're willing, would want to pick your brain at all? I'd be delighted to talk to anybody. The easiest way to get to me, I have an AOL email address. I've had an AOL email address for a very long time. Keep it going. Keep it going. I love it. I get calls or I get emails from people I haven't heard from in months or years. And so I've retained it. So my email address is E-S-H-E-R 10312 at AOL.com. And I'll be delighted to hear from anybody. They obviously need to tell me 
at the beginning of their email who they are and how come they're calling or writing. But I'll be happy to talk to anybody, share ideas with anybody. My cell phone is 617-680-6616. I've had the same cell phone number for more than 30 years. I thought you were going to tell me you still were using a rotary. I do not have a rotary <laughs> phone. But I got a cell phone when they first, in, back in 1988. The cord? No, it was the one that was built into your car. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, because I was commuting a long distance. And I've had the same phone num- same cell phone number and the same email address for a very long time. I'm happy it. to talk to anybody. I love it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I know our listeners will. There's so much to learn from you, Elliot. This was just one little glimmer of all there is. And we're going to have to have you back on the show down the road. But thanks for taking the time. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. One last thing is that, you know, if anybody missed the numbers or the uh, the email, if they contact you, you can. Absolutely. Also, we'll be listing them in the show notes as well. So they'll, they'll be there for everybody. And Elliot, thanks for being so generous with not only your time, like I've already already thanked you for, but also just for that willingness to connect. There's so much to be learned from you, and I'm trying to get as much of it as I can. Well, that's fun. I'm happy to do it. All right. Well, until next time, signing off. Thanks all. You've been listening to the Manufacturing Employer Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about our approach to industrial marketing and the role that company culture has in moving manufacturing forward, visit Gorilla76.com.